Well, good morning. It is good to be here. For those of you who might not know me, I am uh, Jonathan. I am the campus, uh, the promontory campus pastor here. You just saw a little little graph about uh, where we are all the way at the south end of Sardis and up the hill. Uh, we meet in uh, an elementary school there, Promontory Heights Elementary School, and uh, we are coming up on two years as a campus. Uh, we're not quite there, but this September will be two years since we launched and it has been an amazing thing to see God at work. Uh, we've been able to get into uh, a lot of the community events, uh, community association, and work with the school on a number of different projects. Uh, as well, we have a, a soccer camp coming up uh, that's going to be on the field up there. And so we're just we're excited about what God has been doing in Promontory. And uh, we are grateful, grateful to all of you who have supported us so well uh, over these past number of years. And so uh, this morning, every once in a while, I, I get the opportunity. They allow me to come down the hill and, and be here with all of you. And so I'm grateful for that. And uh, I get a chance to actually preach. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue on with our series in the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to open up. We're going to head to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. All right. And as, we, as you find your way there, uh, I want to start off just by asking you a question. What is on your bucket list? What, what, what are the list of things that you have that you want to accomplish before you die, right? A lot of times it's things like a, like a vacation. You want to travel, go to a, a specific country or a place you want to visit. Uh, or maybe it's an experience, something like skydiving or, or bungee jumping. You, you want to do this thing before you die. Maybe it's learning a language. Maybe it's connecting with some, some friends and family that are, that are long, you know, you have, uh, haven't seen them in a long time. What, what's on your bucket list? Well, I came across a story this week about a woman who wanted to check one more thing off from her bucket list. She had gotten the very, very unfortunate news that she had cancer. Uh, it was quite extensive throughout her body. And so the doctor said, well, there's really not much we, we have uh, to do. And so she essentially said, well, okay, I'd like to spend the remainder of my time enjoying it. And so she, she decided she would take her entire family on this vacation together. They were going to head down to Barbados, enjoy some time together on the beach in the sun, and, and really kind of cross one more thing off of that list. Unfortunately, it, it didn't turn out very well. In fact, it went quite badly. See, as she was on this vacation about halfway through, suddenly she got sick. Uh, she had cancer, and it kind of came a little bit more aggressively. She ended up having to go into the hospital, and then the hospital said, actually, we need to fly you all the way back to Canada, where you're from, in order to get treated properly. The unfortunate part about that is that because she was diagnosed with such a serious illness, she wasn't able to get any travel insurance. So she had no medical insurance on this trip, and so when she got home, she had a bill waiting for her for the amount of about $52,000. Unfortunately, that meant her family was the one who was going to be paying that one out. She wanted to have this, this beautiful memory. Instead, they ended up with a massive bill. It didn't work out very well. But lest we kind of pick on her, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. She didn't expect that that would be the outcome. But we can certainly understand that motivation, can't we? We can understand the motivation that says, I, I want to get the, the best use out of my time. I, I want to enjoy my life. I want to make sure I, I get the very best out of the time that I have left. 
I think we can understand that kind of a motivation. In fact, it's a pretty good question for us to ask. How are we going to do that? What does it look like to make the best use of your time? What can you do in order to accomplish that? In fact, it's probably a good question for us to ask before we get to our deathbed, before the doctor said you only have a little bit of time left, asking ourselves now, how do I make the best use of my time? Well, in fact, that's actually the question that the Apostle Paul this morning in our passage is going to answer for us. He's going to walk us through what does it look like to be rejoicing when you know there might not be a lot of time left. So with that in mind, let me invite you to follow along with me in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in the second half of verse 18. It's the beginning of a new paragraph. This is what the Word of God says. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus." Because of my coming to you again. Well, that's as far as we're going to read this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you continually speak to us and that you call us to to spend our lives, to use our lives well for your glory. Oh Lord, this morning as we open up uh, your word, Lord, would you open up our hearts? Would you uh, open up our minds that we might understand what you have for us, but that we might obey? Lord, that we might be confident in our prayers, that we might see that you are the greatest gain that we can have. Oh Lord, might we live for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we, we are really kind of jumping into the middle of a conversation here, right? Paul, Paul has been talking to this Philippian church for a little while now and, and explaining to them what has been going on with him, right? Paul, if you remember, if you've been here throughout our series, Paul is in jail at this point. He is in jail in Rome, and he is waiting uh, to be put on trial before Caesar, And so Paul is writing to this Philippian church. He wants to encourage them, wants to tell them a little bit about what is going on in his life and in his ministry. And what's so surprising about this book is that it's not the book of wringing hands and nervous times. Actually, it's the book of joy and celebration. Paul is rejoicing over everything that God is doing. He he begins the book by celebrating, this is what God has been doing in you, in the church, And he rejoices over that. Last week we looked at this passage. Paul's actually not just rejoicing over what God did there. He's rejoicing over what God has done in his life. That the gospel has continued to go out. That even though he is in chains, the gospel is free and is moving. 
And so this morning, as we continue to read, he's picking up that theme and saying, not only has God been working in my life now, but he will be working in the future. And so Paul begins to rejoice over what God is about to do. You see, Paul is in Rome waiting, in, uh, waiting to be tried by Caesar. Now, if you remember, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul appeals his case to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen, so that was his right. He had a legal right to say, I want Caesar to judge my case. But the truth is, not a lot of people did that. It was, it was quite a dangerous thing to actually put yourself in that situation. And the reason is, is because when Caesar would decide a case, the outcomes were severe. If he said, you are not guilty, immediately you are released, you are cleared of all your charges, you walk out the door a free man. But if Caesar says you're guilty, you are going immediately and you will be executed. See, the truth is, this was a life or death trial and so Paul is beginning to reflect on these two outcomes that he is going to be facing. He could be released or he could be put to death very shortly. And so Paul is asking that same question, how do I make the most out of my time? How do I use my life well? And what Paul is doing, what we see here, is he is actually rejoicing. He's celebrating. Why? Because he knows no matter what, he has something to celebrate. God will be glorified. So I want us to notice that this morning, right? Well, I want to see that, that, that Paul is, first of all, he is confident in prayer, right? He is confident that their prayers will be effective. He is looking forward to this great gain that is in front of him. And finally, he says, and my life is for Christ. It's the purpose that he has. So let's dive into this text and let's unpack that. Look back at verse 18 with me. Paul begins, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, if we had just started there and, and, and we didn't really understand the rest of the context of Philippians, we might be a little confused. What, what exactly is he talking about? What is the this? But we know that Paul's writing from jail. We know that he's sitting in prison, and so he's saying, this prison sentence will turn out, will result in my deliverance. Paul expects that he will be delivered at the end of this trial. He will be set free. In fact, verse 25, he says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all. Paul has this expectation that he is going to be found not guilty. He's going to be set free at the end of it. But I think as we read this, Paul has a little bit more in mind here, doesn't he? I think he has a little bit more in mind than just that he's going to be set free from his trial. Because, in fact, that word deliverance can also be translated as salvation. Saying that this will turn out for his salvation. In fact, keep on reading verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Right? Paul's expecting a good outcome to this trial, but then notice how he ends. He says, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul actually says, I am expecting that I will be vindicated whether this trial sets me free or I am put to death. I will not be put to shame. So you might say, well, what are you talking about, Paul? 
How are you going to be vindicated if you are put to death? That seems like the very opposite. That seems like you're being put to shame, being executed as a prisoner. But I think Paul has something in mind like Romans 1.16. He writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for, uh, of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is Paul unashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God to save. It is effective that when Paul stands before God in a heavenly trial, he will be found not guilty, that he will be vindicated then. And hear me, it's not because he had done enough. It's not because he had done enough good stuff in his life to be vindicated before God. It was because of what Jesus had done. Because Jesus had come, had died in his place, had taken his place, uh, and had paid for his sins, he would not be put to shame when he stands before God. And so Paul says, I am convinced that whether I live or die, Jesus will be glorified and he will be honored. I will not be put to shame. See, that's the truth, and that's the truth for every single one of us here today. If we have confessed our sins, repented, turned away from them, and turned in trust to Jesus, that is what we can say, I will not be put to shame before God, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus has done. There is no trial in your life that can then put you to shame before God. In the end, you will be vindicated. So take courage now, because Jesus will be glorified in your life or your death. It won't matter. In fact, that's what Paul is going to focus on for the rest of this passage. He's going to look at how is it that God can be glorified in, in death or in life. What does that mean? Before we get there, I want us to notice just one thing. I want us to notice the reason Paul is rejoicing. Did you catch that back in verse 19? Look at it. Paul says, I'm going to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. See, Paul's confidence is actually coming from the fact that the Philippian church is praying for him. That, that their prayers will actually be effective in his deliverance out of jail. And here's why I want us to pay attention to that. See, the truth is, we, we talk about prayers all the time, right? You especially hear that oftentimes now in the media. A politician will say something, right, after a big tragedy has happened, and they'll say the line, our thoughts and prayers are with you, right? And then you go onto social media, and you see everyone posting things and hashtag thoughts and prayers. And, and, and if you're anything as cynical as I am, you look at that and you roll your eyes and you go, ugh, that's just bothering me every single time. Because the truth is, nothing is meant by it. They're empty words without any real meaning. I highly doubt most of the time that when people say that, they actually ever bend their knee and pray. And actually, that's how we've begun to think about prayer sometimes, isn't it? It can leak into the church as well. We start thinking about prayers just as kind of nice wishes that we give. Nice things to think and say when someone comes up and they tell you, you know, this is going on in my life. And we say, oh, I'll pray for you. 
And then we go home and we completely forget it and we never actually do. We say things like, well, I guess all that's left to do is pray. As if that was the last resort and just kind of the who knows, it probably won't ever come true. See, I I don't think that's what Paul is doing. I think we need to be challenged by how Paul thinks about prayer in this instance. Prayer isn't, uh, for Paul, prayer isn't talking about some shot in the dark. He's actually celebrating because he is confident that their prayers are effective. In fact, listen to the promise of Jesus in Mark chapter 13. He says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is able to celebrate because he knows that this promise that Jesus gave to his disciples will come to him by means of their prayers. Their prayers are the means by which God has ordained that grace should come to Paul. It's not a throwaway sentence. It's how God is going to bring us through suffering as well. It comes through the work of prayer. Let us be faithful, steadfast in our prayer, not not throwing it away as if it were a casual thing that we could speak to God. Book of Ephesians, Paul says this. He says, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. See, Paul recognizes the fact that he is not able to do what God has called him to do unless there are people praying for him that God would be opening doors and opening his mouth and giving him words to speak. Should that not be our disposition as well? That we would be confident in our prayer because we serve a God who actually acts. He actually works in our lives. And so Paul can rejoice knowing they are praying for him. Paul's confidence in going through this trial is because he knows that prayer is effective. That God is not going to let him down. He will not be put to shame, neither in his life nor in his death. And see, that's what Paul goes on to talk about. It's really where he's emphasizing in this passage, this amazing claim that Paul says, it's going to turn out well whether I live or I die. We come to verse 21. It's perhaps one of my favorite verses in this book. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I love how how simple Paul puts it. He just punches you with it. To live is Christ. To die is gain. This beautiful, well-constructed phrase, and then he begins to unpack what he means by it. Verse 22. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Right? Paul begins to explain this, and we get a little bit of this almost inner dialogue that Paul is doing. He's kind of talking to himself, and we get to see what Paul is thinking. He's having this, this kind of discussion. If I could choose whether to live or die, which one would I choose? 
And Paul says, this is a hard decision for me. I'm struggling back and forth between it. It's interesting because I think if we were given the option, we wouldn't think twice. Of course I want to live. Of course I want to keep on living. Are you kidding me? Between life and death, that's what Paul is struggling over? But I think that's where we sometimes miss the point. We sometimes miss the point that Paul is talking about. He says, it doesn't matter if I live or die because actually death is going to be a far greater gain. It's going to be a far greater gain for me if I die. That means I depart and I'm with Christ. That is better by far. See, I think we miss that because we will try and do everything we possibly can to avoid dying. We spend a lot of time and effort and energy on making sure that we are nowhere close to ever dying. Now hear me, Paul isn't suicidal. He's not depressed. This is not some melancholy, oh, woe is me, I wish I was dead kind of statement. Actually, what Paul is doing here, he's saying objectively, it is far better for me that I would be with Christ. It is far better for me that I would experience the joys of heaven for they are far greater than anything this earth has to offer. Listen to what Paul says at the end of his life when Paul actually does come to die. He writes this. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. See, when Paul actually does come to die, he says, I cannot wait because there is a reward waiting for me in heaven. It shall be far greater than anything else. I have this reward in Jesus Christ. In fact, not just me. In fact, everyone who places their faith in Jesus, there is a reward waiting for us. See, death isn't the end of everything good. It's the beginning of everything great. It is our true hope that we would one day be with Christ. Oh, the joys of heaven will so far outstrip everything this earth has to offer. There is no one in heaven who's going, I wish I had more time on earth. In fact, it's just like a child going on vacation to Disneyland. At no point in Disneyland do they think to themselves, oh, do I wish I was still in school. Oh, do I wish I was still in math class. That thought has never entered their mind. Never. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> and I think that's what we need to see. I think we need to be reminded of that because so often we, we think so very little of heaven. We think about it not very often, and when we do, we often think of it poorly, right? We think, in contrast, a lot about all the pleasures and experiences and things we could do on earth and spend very little time thinking about heaven. We, we make these bucket lists, the places we want to travel, the things we want to do. We want to be, see our kids. We want to see our grandkids grow up. 
Now hear me, none of those are bad things. It's not wrong to enjoy what God has created. But where we miss the point is when we actually think that this life has something that the next will not. Let me give you an example. Think back to the, the last wedding that you went to. Right? Maybe it was yours, maybe it was someone else's, but think back to, to the last wedding that you went to and, and just picture it. You, you walk into the church and they've got it all very, very beautifully done up. There's flowers on a table, right? There's a nice tablecloth and everyone's wearing nice clothes. You get up there and, and, and the bride and the groom are both standing there, all put together properly, right? The bride has her hair done and the dress is flowing. The groom has managed to get on a suit and he's looking decent, Right? And they're looking at each other, big smile on their face. They can't believe that this moment has finally come. And they stand there and they give these vows to love one another until death do they part. Nothing will ever break this, this beautiful picture that is on that wedding day. But how many of us ever had a, a perfect wedding? How many of us have had a perfect marriage? Actually, it's not long until that beautiful picture gets a crack in it, right? The first argument that comes in that relationship suddenly puts a crack. Sin seems to come in and distort that picture real fast, right? We say some selfish comment, we create an argument, and suddenly what, what seemed like the perfect moment that wouldn't ever end has ended in a crashing down. And the same is true in all of our experiences of life. The very best vacation, oftentimes you end up getting tired and arguing with the family, right? The stain of sin seeps its way into all of our experiences. Even the most perfect memories don't last. They fade away quickly. But see, that's the point that Paul is making here. Paul's making the point that to be with Christ is far better because we get to experience a joy in heaven that does not end, that isn't ever infected with sin, where the glass never gets cracked. No selfish desire comes into the picture. No more fights cause problems. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, no more temptation, no more trial or anguish or contempt will ever get in the way. Why are we so fixed to this world when the joys of heaven are waiting for us just around the corner? Heaven has joys that are never infected by sin. In fact, I think sometimes sin has us in a kind of Stockholm syndrome where we think this is actually what we want. We're like a prisoner who thinks that his greatest joy will come from a slightly bigger cell instead of actually desiring to be free of all of sin. In fact, that is what the joy of heaven is longing for, that we have. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I love the way that Paul puts that. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. It means that this isn't our home now. This is the time of exile, of wandering, of being a sojourner, of being a stranger, of being an alien in a different land. But one day we will have a home and it will be with God. 
one that is not ending, one in which we actually get to see and know God as he is. In fact, the greatest joy of heaven that is waiting in front of us is that we will be with God himself, away from sin and dwelling with him in and a part of his family. No longer are we going to pray and spend time wondering if God has heard us because we're going to pray face to face. No longer are we going to wonder, is this what I should be doing with my life because we can speak with God? No longer are we going to find that every time we try and, and spend time with God, that there's this resistance, this, this sinful nature in our heart pulling us away, trying to get us not to spend that time. In fact, we will, with full joy of heart, long to be with God with everything that we have. The greatest joy that heaven has in front of us is that we will be with him. We will know God as he is, and we will spend all of eternity diving in to the unending goodness of who he is. That is what heaven shall be like again and again, seeing more of God's goodness. All the other joys that earth has to offer are nothing in comparison. We will be home with him. So Paul looks at these options and he says, death? Death is gain for me. It is far greater that I would be with Christ. What does this world even have to offer that would compare? Do we long for heaven like that? Do we look at it and say, that is the greatest gain. I would far rather be there. You might say, okay, but are you sure you really believe that, right? Are you sure you really believe that it's going to be better? Because if you did, wouldn't you try and do something about it? Wouldn't you try and get to heaven even faster, right? Wouldn't you try and say, I'm going to get my motorcycle license and I'm never wearing a helmet again, all right? Let's go, all right? We're going to go to heaven as fast as we can, or maybe we ask the question, well, why does God not just take us to heaven right away? Why are we still here? If God has this heaven waiting for us, why are we still here and, and going through all the pain and, and the suffering this life has to offer? Why doesn't God just take us and go? Well, actually, Paul answers that as well. Look back at verse 22 with me. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says, despite the fact that it would be better for him to depart and to be with Christ, he says, on your account, it would be more necessary for me to stay and to serve you so that you might know more about who God is, so that your faith might increase, so that your joy in Jesus might grow more and more. In fact, Paul is saying, to live is Christ. It's the purpose for which his life is. That's the reason why God has allowed him to live. It's so that he might serve Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 26, look at how he ends. He says, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Right? Why does Paul want to return to this Philippian church? 
It's not so that, so that he can, can get to know them better. It's not so that he can, can enjoy their company more. It's so that they might glorify God because of the grace that they have seen in Paul's life. That's why he is wanting to keep on living. It's so that he might serve Jesus even more. So why doesn't God just take us to heaven right away? Why are we here? Why do we continue on when there is such goodness waiting? The answer is, it's because God has a purpose for your life. If you are here, you are hearing my voice, if you are still breathing, it's because God has a purpose for your life. There's a reason. It's not an accident that you woke up this morning. It's not an accident that you are here today. It's so that God might get a hold of your life and you might serve him. That's why you're here. It's so that the kingdom of God might be built up. It's so that others might increase in their faith, that they might rejoice, that they might look and say, isn't God great? Isn't Jesus magnificent? Isn't his gospel so good that he saved a sinner like me? God has kept us here so that we might go forward and tell the good news of salvation, so that his kingdom might be built up, that we might be a light to a dark, sin-filled world, that people might be delivered out of darkness and into light. So let me conclude then by asking the same question I asked at the beginning. What's on your bucket list? Is it, is it filled with travel, experiences, more things to do? There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's creation. But let me ask you, how are you planning to make the very best use of your time? Can I suggest that we begin to trade some of the fleeting joys that we could do right now for some of the greater eternal joys that are coming in the future? Would we work now to see the kingdom of God go forward, not in some random city, but here now in Chilliwack, that we would see the gospel go forward, that our neighbors might actually hear the good news of what Jesus has done? That is why God has kept us here. It's why God has placed us here. It's why he's given us what we have. It's so that we might serve Christ. So that when we one day come to that hospital bed and we lay dying, our lips might be so practiced in rehearsing the gospel that the doctors and the nurses who treat us on our deathbed might still hear the goodness of Jesus Christ. That we might say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is all gain. That is our list. So as we close this morning, I invite the worship team to come forward. I'm also going to invite those who are serving communion with us to come forward as well. And I think communion is probably one of the most fitting ways we could end this service. See, communion is a symbol. It's, it's a reminder for us of what Jesus has done. It's a reminder for us of the body that was given for us, of the blood that was shed, the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. But as we participate in it, as we partake in this symbol of what Jesus has done, what we are saying 
What we are saying by that is that I am a follower of Jesus, that my life is Christ's, that I am giving myself to him as I participate in what he has done. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the... That <laughs> that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, that's what we want to do this morning. We are proclaiming that the death of Jesus has saved us, that we have a hope in him, that we will not be put to shame. So we will be confident in our prayer as we live for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, that you would send Jesus to die on our behalf. Though we did not deserve it, Lord, you looked on us with mercy and with grace. Father, now as we come and as we partake of the Lord's Supper, oh Lord, we confess that we have sinned before you, that we have not earned our way, but we come in faith, Lord, that you have redeemed us, that you have saved us. It was not our actions, but yours. And so, Lord, might you then be glorified in our life. Would our actions be to your glory? Would our life be yours? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.